Luke 11, 1 through 13. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, Yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Excellent. Thanks, Pete. That's the word of the Lord. So today is the last Sunday of the year, and it's also last Christmas Eve, this last Tuesday or Monday or whatever. We celebrated one year as a church, which is awesome. We celebrate, yeah, that's cool. One year as a launch church. Um, and God's been so faithful to us. It's been, it's been like... It's been like tides back and forth. Like we've met at different locations, like something like five different locations over the course of the year we met in. And, and yet Jesus has been faithful to build his church. So here's a couple things that have happened just, just to celebrate. So we've launched 18 Park Hill communities in this first year. You guys, that's 18 houses, 18 households and communities that are hosting people to practice the way of Jesus. That's the win to me. That's, that's our win. Um, that, so, so if you look at this room when it's totally full, uh, about 25 to 30% of the people you see are in community, like throughout the week, which is huge. We would love to, when I say we, it's leaders, we would love to see like 65 to 75% of this gathering be in communities by the end of 2019, because that's the win, people practicing the way of Jesus together in intimacy. And another thing, this last year we were able to give over $23,000 to global justice work through Hear the Cry and Love Does, and part of that went to helping build a school for displaced Afghan kids in, in like an orphanage. It's tremendous. And uh, additional resources were, uh, went to blessing people in need right here, people that were uh, kind of at the end of their rope in that moment. We were able to bless them through the Benevolence Fund. Uh, and after one year, this is cool, our, our staff, after one year, is growing from two full-time and one part-time. As we step into 2019, we're going to have three full-time and two part-time people who can better serve and like pastor this church. And one of the full-time people we're onboarding, uh, the one is, is an operations assistant. She's moving in from Florida, uh, who will work closely with Park Hill Kids and Matt Persley and volunteers to make sure everyone's pastored well and everything runs smoother behind the scenes. 
Can't wait for you to meet her. She's amazing. And then starting next week, like I said, we're going to two gatherings on Sundays. And so next Sunday, we'll pick up where we left off in the Gospel of Matthew. So the, <laughs> we, we, we went through Matthew 1 through 16 last year. And, and this year, we're starting in 17. The next four chapters are gritty, you guys. It's like super gritty, like specific vision from Jesus on how the church is supposed to act in the world. So like in January and February, we're gonna see Jesus talking about death and social status and hell and marriage and divorce and singleness and forgiveness and wealth and your work ethic, all light topics. And then we'll finish the Gospel of Matthew after Easter. Just in time for summer, we'll finish Matthew. And I'm super pumped about the summer because we're, we're starting to kind of like evil genius architect this idea to do a series that is based on qu your questions that come through your communities. So this is another incentive to join a Park Hill community because we're gonna like pool and gather the most frequently asked questions that we would love to talk about as a church. Like the intersection of the, of, of the gospel and culture, like the nagging questions beneath the surface. Uh, what are those questions? And we'll, and we'll pull those from the communities and then in the summer we'll take like the top six or seven or whatever and, and we'll just run them through the grid of historic Christianity and we'll go there together as a church in the summer. Uh, don't have a title for that yet, but that sounds kind of awesome. Um, so 2019 is gonna be an amazing year as we keep practicing Jesus's way and doing what Jesus did together uh, on Sundays around word, table, songs, and prayer, and in communities around one another. Uh, so for today, like I said, this is like that bonus floater Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, it's a perfect opportunity to like realign ourselves with the simple stuff of Jesus, like the simple like the simple stuff that gets us to the heartbeat of God. And so I thought if there's just one thing that we could really camp out on on the last Sunday of the year that will shape us in the most beautiful way, uh, what would it be? I, to, me, to me, it's prayer. Prayer. One thing, one word for today that just, that just launches us into who Jesus wants us to be as a church next year. It's prayer. So that's what we're talking about today. We're gonna to talk about prayer and then we're going to pray today. We're not just gonna talk about it. We're not just gonna agree that prayer is a good thing. We're gonna actually do it. So if we're honest about prayer, just start off honestly. I mean, church is supposed to be a place where you're authentic. Even though it's sometimes church can be a place where we're afraid to be real because you're afraid of being judged or whatever. But, but so let's be honest. Christians usually want to pray better. Like I've never met a Christian who's like, I'm super satisfied with my prayer life. Like, I rarely meet those people. I know they exist. There's some people that are like, I'm obedient. I'm fully obedient, and I'm doing the right thing. I love that, but I think that's rare. And for the most part, Christians mean well, but we're usually like, I should pray more. Um, and I think we need to be honest about that, because most of us end up thinking, like, does this even work? Like, or it's like kind of a waste of time, or it's boring, or it's awkward, or I'm not good at praying in groups, or I pray for everything I can. I pray for everything, including my kids and my travels and even Trump and like world peace. I pray for everything I can, everything I can think of, and then like 60 seconds later, I'm done. Like, um, most of us wish we were better at prayer. We know it's important. Like, if I asked you, is prayer important? You'd be like, yeah. Uh, but... Honestly, most of the time, prayer's not as good as like season six of House of Cards at 10 p.m. It's just, just being real, you know what I mean? Like prayer isn't, it's tough, it's tough. So let's be honest about that. Most of us wish we were better and we wanna grow because we know in our bones that prayer is at the heart of Jesus's way of life. 
It's at the heart of what he did. It fueled his activity. So that's why, that's why Peter read uh, Luke 11 today. It's one of the most encouraging passages about prayer. Because honestly, what I think we need most is encouragement to pray. Just pure, loving encouragement from the Spirit to pray. And so let me say this right off the bat. It's not about how long you pray or how good you sound when you pray. Uh, the Pharisees nailed it. They were epic at prayer. Muslims today pray five times a day. So it's not about how often or how good you do. You can pray, you can, you can pray long, passionate, elaborate prayers and miss the point. Totally. So we need to look at Jesus to get this right. So what are some things Jesus did? He's famous for doing. Shout them out. Miracle, what kind of, like healing people, teaching, he was a good teacher. Uh, like he also, I love, I love this about Jesus, he stood up to the powers, like he stood up against the injustice in his government. I love that about Jesus. Uh, he taught about the kingdom, he cast out demons. All that stuff is epic, but it's interesting. Not one recorded occasion do we see the disciples saying, Lord, teach us to cast out, give us a demon casting out lesson. And, and they never say, Lord, teach us to heal or teach us to protest against the powers or teach us to teach, give us a teaching seminar. But what we do hear the disciples saying is, Lord, teach us to pray. Why is that? I think it's because they realize that the source for casting out demons and his teaching skills and healing people and protesting injustice, it was all rooted deeply in prayer. They, they saw that, they could intuit that. So the disciples asked Jesus for prayer lessons. So that's what we're doing today. We're getting a prayer lesson from Jesus at Park Hill. So let's read it again, verse one. If you have Bible, uh, look it up, verse one. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just like John taught his disciples. This is, first of all, so encouraging to me. Why? Because they've literally been walking with Jesus in Israel, like following him through the dirt roads for a long time, and they still haven't got it. I like that. That helps me. They still, they like see his face. They know the color of Jesus' eyes and yet they haven't figured out how to pray. It's so encouraging to me. And Jesus isn't like, what, you guys haven't figured out yet? You guys are idiots. I can't, how, how long am I gonna put up with you guys? When are you gonna freaking get it? Jesus doesn't do that. He simply says, all right, let's do it. You and me, now, teaching lesson. And that's what he's doing with us. Tremendous kindness. This is the kindness of Jesus for Park Hill. We're like, we don't pray good enough. I want to, I don't know if I ever will, but Jesus just help. And Jesus is like, let's do it. That's his heart, same heart. He's like, I got it, I, you got it, I'm here for you. And so Jesus lays out what's famously called the Lord's Prayer, which is kind of a misleading title. It's more like the disciples' prayer because this prayer is Jesus' pattern for how followers of Jesus are to interact with God. And so this prayer is like the outline for every community of Christians in every culture everywhere. So let's get into it. Jesus says this, verse two. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. There it is. There's Luke's rendition of the Lord's Prayer. It's a classic verse. Most of us can read it with our eyes closed. 
But Jesus is trying to teach us something I think that it's easy to miss. So we're gonna go through this line by line and then we'll end on a couple of Jesus' own illustrations and then we'll actually pray together and eat the bread, drink the cup. That's the plan for today. So Jesus starts out by saying, pray for the Father's glory. That's that Father, hallowed be your name. Father, we pray first and foremost. Check your prayer life right now, guys. Is this your prayer life? First and foremost, pray that the Father's goodness would be known, that his name and his character, his good, good character, would be the driving force between everything I do and everything everyone knows about God. Father, hallowed be your name. That's Jesus' starting point. God is good. That's Jesus' starting point for everything. He's good, you guys. That's God's character. He's good, he's amazing, he's beautiful. And your prayer should reflect how you understand how good he is. So how many of you love being in a room with somebody who's in kind of a bad mood, doesn't like you very much, and is honestly a boring person? How many of you like being around boring, grumpy people who don't like you? No hands, good. You're listening, that's good. Uh, if, if we're honest, if we're honest, a lot of people sort of think God is boring and he's maybe in an off mood and he doesn't really like me that much. I know we wouldn't always say it out loud, but again, let's be honest, we're in church. Uh, but deep down, I think this is the image some of us have about God. This, this image flirts with us all the time. Like God's in a bad mood. I mean, how could he not be in a bad mood? Look at how bad the world is getting. He must be bummed out about something. Uh, and he doesn't really like me. He sees all my secret junk. And he's just kind of, I mean, honestly, he's kind of boring. Like, so the first thing Jesus is after is our mental picture of God. God is our father. And unlike any human father, he is through and through good. Jesus goes right for the root. So Jesus' picture of God, it directly confronts modern secular pictures of God, like this famous picture. If you've read any atheists, you've probably come across this quote. Richard Dawkins, uh, this is a fun quote to read. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So, yeah, and people think Christians are angry. <laughs> like, <coughs> that's, that's a hateful atheist. And I know most atheists aren't angry like that. Uh, so, but some of us, honestly, some of us must look at that quote and think, I know God's not that bad, but he's got a point. Like he's, there's some point down in there somewhere. What do you think God is like? It's been said, and I agree, the most important thing about you is what you think God is like. I think that's true because unless we break the stronghold of false images of God in our minds, we'll never be drawn to prayer. We'll feel like God's busy or I'm not that important or whatever. I mean, honestly, my guess is most American Christians just kind of by default think of God as like a middle-class dad. Like he's got a great heart, but he's got lots of kids and like, 
he's trying, you know. He's trying, he's really busy, and so since he's so busy, I'm just gonna try to figure it out myself. We never, again, we never say this, but we live like this. Now contrast that with Psalm 103. Let's read this part of Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul, and all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. You guys, that, Psalm 103, is the believer's experience of what God is like. We will not be a spiritually strong church if we don't pray, and we'll never pray unless we break the false pictures in our minds of what God is like. And we start by saying, I'm gonna spend time in prayer before God who is deep down at the deepest level good. I'm gonna fall down before a good God right now. Because guess what, you guys? God's in a good mood. (laughs) And he's fascinating, and best of all, he really likes you. Do you know that? Like God, God is like really into you right now. He's on the edge of his seat about you. How many of you love spending time with somebody who's in a good mood, it's fascinating, and they dig you? Yeah, cool. The rest, wow. Let me ask, how many of you love spending time with someone who's in a good mood, is incredibly interesting, and super digs you? Cool. Yeah, like, this is is what we have to understand about God. We have to understand this about God. He's not distant and uninterested in you. He really likes you, and he's incredibly fascinating. I mean, the picture in Scripture, we see it at the end of the Bible, even still, is angels around the throne in the holiness presence of God. They still haven't got past the word holy after thousands of earth years. You know what I mean? They're like, holy, holy, holy. like they haven't, they're like, hold on, let me cover my, my face and my feet as I fly, and holy, like they haven't got past holy. There's so much goodness in God to unearth. If you're bored with God, you might be the boring one, okay? I say that at myself as well. I honestly love you. There's lots of love here, but it could be, I, I know this is true with me, I get distracted with the trivia of life the trivial things that keep me anesthetized from feeling the divine. We need to break through our boredom to rediscover the wonder of who God is. Like, so first off, Jesus says, Father, hallowed be your name. And then, and then he goes right to your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Another, word, another way of saying this, Jesus, your government come. Your political agenda come, Jesus. And it doesn't match with the popular American partisan lines. It is Jesus' agenda. If there was ever a time, you guys, that we needed some decent government, it's now. The world's going crazy. It's a giant seething cauldron of overreactive, hate-filled ideology. So much self-righteous political correctness, and it's poisoning us. It's poisoning the world right now. And, And honestly, what all of our political pursuits, what we're all after is ultimately good. 
like justice and equality for all. That's great, but the way we're trying to achieve it is limited because we are all longing for the government of God. When you, and when you take a long, honest look at the, the government Jesus is bringing, the leadership of Jesus, you, quick, you quickly realize that Jesus' leadership is exactly what we're all longing for. It's exactly what we're wanting. Jesus quotes from this ancient prophet Isaiah to describe the government Jesus is bringing. Check this out. Who doesn't want this? The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Do you have that slide? It's a big one. To proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the, for the display of his splendor. And they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated from generations. Come on, look at that. Who, everybody wants that. Every politician, every person and party is working for that. And how do we know that? We're frustrated when our desires are blocked by incompetent and corrupt leaders. And listen, I love, I love, don't get me wrong, I love when Christians take up social justice causes. I mean that sincerely. Do that. We need that. But let's save some of our angst for prayer. I don't want to burn myself out sticking it to the man and challenging the powers all the time. My conviction, my conviction is that followers of Jesus should devote more time to prayer than they do to protest. That's not, nothing is protesting. There's a time and a place. Followers of Jesus should fuel their protest from their knees. I love this quote from M. Sean Copeland. She's a black female theologian that I've been reading recently, and she powerfully describes how prayer and protest and suffering all meet together in the Christian life. Love this quote from her. Faith and love, hope and prayer are the meat and bread, sweet and drink, that sustain us along with the example of enslaved women and men who have walked this way before us. Indeed, they walk with us now. How many of us have that vision for prayer? Like we clasp our hands together to take up the cross with those who are suffering. And by doing that, we begin the hard work of God's kingdom on earth. Our Father, you're good, you're good, you, you are not in a bad mood, you like me. And Father, come take back what the darkness has stolen. Lift up those that are on the fringe and weak and being trampled. Do it, Lord, fill the world with light, come do it, God. Do it, I stand with the suffering in this prayer time. How many of us do that in prayer? This is what Jesus is saying to do. And then we come to the next line in Jesus' prayer. Verse three, give us each day our daily bread. And this is simple from Jesus. He's simply saying, I love Jesus. <laughs> it's, it's simple, yet it's profound. He's saying, no big deal. I just want to break your idolatrous dependence on the broken systems of the world. <laughs> I, no big deal. I just want you to depend on me and not, your, not the dollars, signs, and the numbers on your checking statement. I really, really, really want you to depend on me more than that. 
When it comes to money, when it comes to who we date, the neighborhoods we choose to live in, the careers we pursue, Jesus is like, look to me. Just trust me. Trust me. Trust is a, is a, a rare commodity these days. How many churches do you know with faith in the title, of their, in the name of their church? Like Faith Lutheran, Faith Community Church, Faith, Faith, Faith. That's great, but the idea of faith biblically is, is, is a concrete trust. How many churches do you know with the word trust in their name? I don't know very many. That gets really close to home. It's hard to trust. But Jesus is saying, get, trust, God, trust that God never overpromises. He only delivers. I mean, it's like Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. What was the first thing Satan tried to get Jesus to distrust the Father with? Bread. He's like, I know the Father said he's enough, but just, just, just feed yourself. Just take matters into your own hands. And Jesus is like, no, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word. So are we gonna take shortcuts to achieve our goals, or are we gonna resist the temptation of Satan and depend on God in 2019? Are we gonna say, God, I, I look to you for everything. I trust you, I believe in you. And then Jesus moves to forgiveness, the next part of the prayer. Forgive us our sins, verse four, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. So Jesus tells us, to, why? Let me ask a question. Why does Jesus tell us to ask the Father for forgiveness? Not really a trick question. Because we sin all the time. We, we actually sin all the time. And just speaking honestly, I'm starting to notice a trend in my own generation of Christians. Um, may or may not be true, but it's my experience. You can judge this or whatever, but Christians in my generation don't talk about sin as much as previous generations did. Um, because honestly, when you start preaching on sin, there is a part of that where the word sin is kind of, it's kind of lost in translation because in the 60s and 70s, most of America had a definition for that word. But now it's like, what? remind us what that is again? <laughs> so you have to define it in order to preach on it, but I think it's worth it because we're not doing it. Um, because honestly, when you hear a sermon on sin, in my generation, it tends to feel like a beatdown. But here's the problem with that. For me, for me, and probably for many of us, if I don't have a time of daily confessing my sin, then I start to believe, delude myself into thinking that I'm not very sinful. And the problem with that is that I become less inclined to forgive other people who sin against me. Like, without, without consistently confessing my sins, I start to just absorb this false reality that I'm kind of self-righteous and I'm kind of okay. And so when people sin against me, it's like, it's way easier to judge them and be like, how could they have said something like that to me? And my wife's like, what are you talking about, Evan? You say that kind of stuff to people all the time. Uh, and, and I'm just not self-aware. So if I don't confess my sins regularly, I just become completely unself-aware. Uh, and we need the self-awareness that comes from regularly confessing our sins by coming to our Father who's good and saying, Lord, forgive me. We know you have an endless supply of forgiveness, and I know you will forgive me, but I need to verbalize this. I confess this and this and this, and I do it in community. This is how we become a culture of humility, okay? We're never gonna forgive someone who sins against us if we feel like we sin against no one. So Jesus goes on, finally, and lead us not into temptation. 
And this one, you guys, is huge. Lord, lead us away from temptation. Because we live in a culture where every environment you step into has been carefully designed to influence your decisions. If you're in behavioral economics or whatever, it's called choice architecture. If you know that term, if you're, if, if you're a parent, you know this term. If you have kids, it's like, hey honey, would you like kale salad or beans and rice? Like, these are your choices, this is all we have for dinner. And they're like, beans and rice, and you're like, when? What you didn't tell them is that there's ice cream in the freezer, so, so there are other options in the universe, but you limited their choices, you architected their choices so that they think they chose beans and rice and the whole universe is the best option. So that is choice architecture. And little do we realize all day long that every environment we step into has been completely curated and designed to, to give you options and make you think those are the only options. And honestly, uh, we have to be reminded every day, Lord, lead us away from temptation. Lead us away from temptation because our culture is guiding us and discipling us and forming us and, and shaping our affections. And it's saying, here's the vision of the good life and 100 options to get there. And we're like, Lord, lead us not into temptation. We, we need to know there's another choice. Break our limited view of reality. Give us true vision from heaven to see the kingdom choice every moment. This is what lead us not into temptation means. Lord, give us the kingdom choice, the choice of the good, true, beautiful way of Jesus. Forgive our sins and lead us in your way. And so finally, I'm gonna bring over the last part of the Lord's Prayer from Matthew's version into this sermon because I think it's important as well for us today, and it's deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one, Matthew 6, 13. And this one is unique. It's uniquely important for us because we live, post, it's postmodern technically, but after the Enlightenment, modernism took away all the magic. We live in a secular culture, and even in the church, we think secularly because we're so prone to misdiagnose the root problems in the world. Here's what I mean. One critique of modern evangelicalism as a whole is that we have a Satanless gospel. Like I could present a version of the gospel right now. You ready? So God created the world good. He made humans in his image. Adam and Eve chose to sin against God. The earth was cursed. Our relationship with God was fractured. And so God raised up a righteous family in Abraham. And then God gave Abraham's family the law. The law pointed to Jesus. Jesus came. He lived a sinless life. Died a sinner's death. Being innocent. Rose from the dead. And then uh, we seek now first the kingdom. And then we go to heaven when we die. When we believe in Jesus. And so this sounds biblical. It's missing Satan. Entirely. And, and why is that important? If you don't have Satan in your gospel, do you, do you know who you, turn into, who you turn into Satan? Like, people become Satan. If Satan's not in your gospel, you make people Satan. Either you make all of our hearts Satan, like, like God came to kill us 
Uh, God wanted to kill us, but he, he, he sent Jesus to save us from God because we were, or you turn others into Satan and they become the satanic characters, which is what most of culture is doing right now online. So when we pray, Lord, deliver us from the evil one, we orient ourselves right in the world and we realize people aren't the enemy. Satan is the enemy. It's not our neighbor. It's not flesh and blood. In fact, Paul wrote this to a confused people. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That was written to Christians in a city where there's a big old temple, a temple of Artemis, where thousands of people streamed in for sexual orgies in an act of worship to this multi-breasted god Diana who was the centerpiece of paganism in the, in the Roman world. And so Paul's like, remember, the people aren't the problem at the root. There is a force of evil beneath it all. There is an unseen evil that God has been dead, sent, dead set against from the dawn of time. And now I realize that this, all this talk of demons and invisible forces is tough for some people because we're like enlightened and stuff, right? So uh, we're overdue for a longer teaching on this, but for now, here's just another verse or two. 1 John 3, verse 8. This verse describes Jesus' mission here. Love this verse. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Craziness. What is going on there? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Okay, so why did Jesus appear? To save us from an angry God? No, to save us from the devil, the one who has been sinning from the beginning. Crazy. One more, Acts 10.38. And the context of this verse, the gospel is going from Jews only to Gentiles now. If you're a Gentile here, this is a big moment for you. Like, unless you're Jewish, like, we thank, we thank God for this moment in history. The gospel went out to every race and every ethnicity. At this moment, it was breaking out. Huge moment in the story of the Bible. And Peter says this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. It's amazing to me. It's mysterious. And every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, it's a reminder of who's the real enemy here. We get so confused that the, the real enemy is not other people. If you care about justice, like you take up social justice causes, this is an important prayer. The hatred in our culture is from people turning other people into the enemy. And when we pray, Lord, deliver us from the evil one, it actually realigns our vision with God's reality, and we see the world and other people more clearly, okay? So, so we just walk through the Lord's Prayer. That's the Lord's Prayer. Maybe a better title would be the Disciples' Prayer. And I think the way Jesus gives this prayer is super important. Like, the order is really important. It forms us. Because if you don't pray the Lord's Prayer in the order the Lord gave it, you don't end up with the Lord's Prayer, you can easily end up with the American Prayer, okay? So I'm gonna set the Lord's Prayer against the American Prayer, just as an exercise right now, if you don't mind. Look at this slide, here's the slide. So Lord's Prayer, American Prayer. 
On the Lord's Prayer, so you have good father. It starts, good father, receive all glory. May his government come. Give us the things we need. Forgive us as we forgive others. Lead us away from temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. This, this is your thing. Notice it starts vertical, and then it goes out and forms a new community around God's character, and then you're empowered to do warfare the right way where people aren't the enemy. But, but and contrast that with the American prayer here. Uh, you've got God keep me safe. It's like, kind of like a helicopter parent keep me safe, just general traveling mercies, just kind of just keep me safe or whatever. And then show me what to do with my life. Like, what do you want, God? Like, there's so much confusion. Like, we, we infuse our prayer with confusion. Like, what is your will? You know, it's like, show me what you want. I want to know what you want for my life. Help people and help people forgive me. And provide me with stuff. That's pretty good. What? And by the way, what do you want, God? And, and God, keep me safe. Amen. Or whatever. And so, and so next, next slide, you see the difference. Uh, next slide, the Lord's Prayer, it starts vertically with God's character and it shapes a new community. And then, and then it fuels the true battle. It gets our mind in the game in reality. And I know that's a broad brush. You can judge that slide. You can be like, that's not how I pray. Totally, it's a broad brush. But, but let's take this moment and truly evaluate our prayers according to the priorities of Jesus, are we praying American prayers or are we praying kingdom prayers? So often we rarely get to the Father's glory and even less often do we get to like the government of Jesus. Bring your government into the world and it may not be compatible with the systems we've grown up with. Bring your rule, God. This is the Lord's prayer. And I love what Jesus does next. Here's where we transition to communion. We're gonna to come to the tables in a minute. <laughs> Jesus introduces this idea of praying with, I love this, praying with shameless audacity, he says. That's in the NIV. So let's read it. Verse five, then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food for him. And verse seven, suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door's already locked and my kids and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So Jesus is like, hey look, God is better than your friends. He's not like your friends. He's actually good all the way down. And if you can nag your friends into doing you a favor, imagine what you can do with a purely good all the way down God who is digging on you. He likes you. Imagine, just imagine what's possible. Start stepping into what's possible with God. And then he goes on. So, verse nine, because of that, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So how many of you, when you get ready to pray, you're like, oh yeah, I'm about to get my shameless audacity on right now. It's gonna be ridiculous. This is gonna be ridiculous. It's gonna be insane. How many, we step into prayer with that. That's Jesus' like shameless audacity. Bring that into your prayer moment. Honestly, Jesus is tipping his cards here. He's tipping all his cards and saying, I dare you to play a better hand. Use what I've got up my sleeve, everything. And, and so, so I tend to take that and I go, I'm gonna bring these receipts back to God. I'm gonna be like, God, look what you said. 
You, you wrote this, I didn't write this. You wrote that everyone who asks receives. You said that everyone who seeks, I'm just, this is just you, Jesus, so I'm gonna, you, and you won't overpromise and underdeliver. You will only perfectly promise and deliver what you say. You said this, so I'm gonna ask and seek and pray in your name. You guys, we are invited to that high level of expectation. Park Hill Church is called to this high level of expectation in prayer in 2019. Uh, so, so remember, God is a good father and it flows out of that. It flows out of his goodness. So what, in closing, what does this look like for Park Hill? So we have continuing rhythms and new rhythms. This is what this means. Here's our continuing rhythms. Pre-gathering prayer and gathering prayer. Let's start with pre-gathering. You guys have heard this all year. About 55 minutes before the 10 a.m. gathering at 9.10, we've been gathering every single Sunday to ask Jesus to show up to mess with us in the best way and to bring his kingdom on earth through Park Hill Church. We're gonna keep doing this, but not at 9.10 because that's when the first gathering is gonna be going now. So we're gonna meet at 8.10 a.m. every Sunday, except January 27th, which is the next community Sunday, by the way. You don't need to know that yet. We'll announce that later. But every Sunday at 8, 10 a.m., pre-gathering prayer, the whole church is invited to come. Uh, this is a culture-shaping initiative of prayer for us. So pre-gathering prayer, uh, everyone come, and then gathering prayer. So we have gathering prayer. That's what we're about to do. We're gonna come to the table, and then we're gonna break up in groups, and we're gonna actually see what God wants to do in this environment. This is a perfect environment for God to actually work amongst his children as they're gathered. I love it. We, we, so we're, we're gathering on Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. expecting God to act in our midst. So, so those are the continuing rhythms. Here's the new ones, new rhythms. Number one, morning prayer. We now will have Wednesday morning prayer for one hour starting the first Wednesday of 2019. That's January 2nd. Right there in the room we normally have kids. It's the bridal suite. Right here at Building 177, every Wednesday morning from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m., we are gonna seek the face of Jesus on behalf of the church, and it will hopefully, prayerfully, shape and renovate our spiritual culture as a church. This is us, we have to do this. We have to take the gas pedal of prayer and push it further and realize, oh my gosh, we're not even close to the metal yet. God is calling us to act with him in prayer. And so the first way, there's only one other way that we're gonna talk about today. The first way is through morning prayer. Super pumped about that. Um, and finally, we're just calling this seven, okay? You have that word up there? It's, it's kind of washed out by the sun, but it says seven. What is seven? Well, mark your calendars for Sunday night, March 31st, to Saturday morning, April 6th. That's one week in the spring. We're gonna be joining several churches, churches that don't normally kind of flow together. Several churches are coming together in a unified way. Uh, all over San Diego, we're gonna to come together to fast and to pray for seven days as Jesus is unified, unified church in our city. So there will be a, a, basically a 90-minute prayer session every day that week as 
Christians, followers of Jesus all over the city are fasting and praying on their own and coming together for a climactic moment of prayer every single date of that week. Uh, and so Sunday through Friday, it's 90 minutes at night, and then it closes with a Saturday morning prayer gathering at Rockies County where we're all gonna invade that room and we're just gonna ask that Jesus brings his kingdom in a greater measure through his people in San Diego. Um, and so it'll be led by like a collaboration. There's no one leader, there's no one church spearheading it. So it's, it's like, you know, each night is a different group of pastors leading the prayer times, different worship leader each night, different building. We might have a worship leader from another church that's not even part of that church in the building that they're at. It's just total mix up, just everyone together, all in. And I love that, I think it's amazing. So it's like no grander scheme, no other agenda, no, no name being promoted other than lifting up the name of Jesus. And so that is, gosh, I really believe that Jesus wants to break through in, in ways that we haven't seen in, the, in decades in, in San Diego. And, um, and for gospel renewal, not just, not, just, not just to bring together the church, but Jesus said, make them one so that the world, Father, so that the world will see that you sent me. Father, make them one so the world will see that you love them like you love me. And so we're unifying around prayer for that reason, for that purpose. I mean, wouldn't it be incredible to see so much unity amongst unlikely churches, so much unity in this city that like, <laughs> and so much active love, like the mayor of San Diego is like, whoa, the churches are really getting their act together. The churches are really helping. Like, that's amazing. Wouldn't it be amazing to see so much unity and so much active love and service being done more than ever that people all over the country are like, oh, you're... You're a San Diegan. Jesus is like doing stuff there, right? I heard about that. Like, wouldn't that be rad? Like, to be part to be part of something that Jesus is doing through prayer, and it all begins with prayer. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just asking you guys if you're ready for 2019. Cool. You're ready. This is, this is the call. This is the call. Shameless audacity. God, here's the receipts you wrote. You said you would respond in these crazy ways. So let's all stand. We're gonna invite the Holy Spirit to come. We're gonna enter into a time of prayer. And we're gonna come to the table just like the church has for thousands of years.